Welcome to the War Nomads podcast, delivered by War Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. There's something about the islands here that touches people's souls. Hopefully we're making an impact in the world that people will stop killing and culling sharks. It looked like snot and it smelled bad, but then let that put you off. It was good for you. <laughs> what else in the world? You're going to see the condor three meters right in front of you. No, absolutely. Mm, I'm not sure Dog if I want to see the out. condor three meters in front of me. So many things in our society that are throwaway and we see those things. Things on our beaches, on our coastlines. Has anyone ever pooped themselves? <laughs> Sometimes the Germans can come off as cold. Uh, I think it's important to remember what has happened, but also look forward to the into the future and, and be positive about it. And that's, I think, what Germans are. It offers travelers the opportunity to teach English to children and experience the Panamami... Oh, that's going to be... The... <laughs> Speaking of teaching yeah. English... <laughs> I've got to learn to speak it. We were all told that you can't take a leak into the river. You can't <laughs> urinate into the river mm. because there's a parasite that will swim up your urine stream. Mm. Yeah, Phil, um, you... Uh... An idiot. <laughs> <laughs> it's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveller. Yeah, welcome to our latest episode. We're focusing on Indonesia in this one, and Phil tells me it's our 13th. Does that mean it's lucky 13th or unlucky 13th? The lucky 13th, or... Or podcast 12A, whichever you prefer, <laughs> if you're superstitious. Well, I do like that. You know they don't have a 13 in some lifts. Oh, or some hotels. They don't have a 13th floor. A oh, 13th floor, really? Yep. Too unlucky. People don't want the room, so they sit empty for too long and they can't fill them up. So well, they... I wonder why I haven't noticed that. It is, in actual fact, still the 13th floor. Well, it's, just exactly. called, it's just called 14. <laughs> but somehow we convince ourselves. That's it. <laughs> well, we had some feedback on our last episode, which was number 12, firmly number 12, on South Korea. Do you want to share that? Yeah, yeah. Sarah, who featured in the podcast about her 20-month-long honeymoon, which included a visit to South Korea, she uh, she commented, she said, I've been listening to the podcast since the first Croatia episode, and I love it. I'd been trying to find a travel podcast that I enjoyed, and the topics, energy, oh, that's you, Ken, oh. and interviews on the World Nomads podcast make this one so fun and informative to listen to. I'm beyond honoured to have been part of the episode, said Sarah. Uh, we were honoured to have you on too. Absolutely. What great feedback and an update too on Sarah and Tim and their 21st century odyssey. At the time of recording, they were in Fiji, having just left New Zealand. So they're having a ball. I don't think they've had a, had a fight yet. <laughs> 20 months. Yeah. 20 months honeymoon. All right, let's get into it, Phil. Tell us a little bit about Indonesia. All right. Uh, it's, it's, it's a long chain of islands that sits in between the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. It's actually the world's largest island country with more than 13,000 islands. Actually, I don't think they know the full number. I've heard everything between 13,000 and 17,000 wow. islands. Wow. But one of those islands is one of the world's most popular island destinations, Bali. Yeah, thousands of islands to choose from, though, as you mentioned. We'll catch up with blogger Anthony. He's known as the Travel Tars. <laughs> <laughs> and he touches on a few of those must-see places you won't find in the guidebook. So, obviously, some of those 13 to 17,000 other islands. islands. That's it. Yeah. And we'll also talk to Alex about... Oh, Alex was a great chat. Insane guy. He was in Indonesia and he wanted to... Um, you hear his story but he was in Indonesia and he wanted to uh, have one up on his brother. 
on his brother. So he, he left and ended up being chased by headhunters in West Papua, or Papua as he calls it. So headhunters. Headhunters. Okay. We will hear his story. <laughs> now that's getting off the beaten track. That's way it? off the beaten track. And Audrey, who chats surfing in Indonesia with us. But Phil, your quiz question for this episode. Yes, okay. Uh, the question this episode, Kim, what colours the Eiffel Tower? Top tip, it's repainted every seven years and it's not always the same colour. Well, that makes it hard. But what colour is it presently? Ah, okay, so in 2018, what colour is it? Correct. All right, the answer at the end of the episode. I figure there are two types of travellers in the world, Kim, those who go with friends and those who go it alone. Our first guest is in the solo travel camp. She visited 21 countries, including Indonesia, on five continents in a solo journey that lasted 28 months and began with a one-way ticket to India. What happened to her along the way changed her outlook on life and inspired her to be a life coach and the author of a book, Facing Freedom, which is available on Amazon. There's the free plug. Welcome to the podcast, Erin Donnelly. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for having me. Great intro. Uh, thank you. What was it that drove <laughs> you? I, mean, I, I know a little bit about your backstory. So what was it that drove you to undertake this journey in the first place? Yeah, so um, I was 36 and I was coming out of my second divorce and I was uh, basically really unhappy and um, I finally, I went through like this really kind of dark period of depression, and that was not the first time. And I really had this moment where I was looking at myself and my life and the choices I'd made. And um, I had this kind of moment where I realized I was the one causing the problems in my life. And I was just, uh, I was tired of hurting myself and other people. And I really just decided I need to look at this and see what this is before I carry these patterns into the second half of my life. So uh, so was it obvious to you that travel might be the answer, that I need to go travelling? Or was that kind of a consequence of all of these, uh, all of this turmoil in your life? Yeah, it was sort of more of the, the turmoil. Um, and I think it was more the need to just remove myself from my own surroundings and environment just so I could, you know, I felt like I couldn't breathe. So, I mean, I had been to India a couple years earlier on a yoga retreat and that in itself was a real kind of fluke for me because I was not a traveler. I didn't grow up with a traveling family. I'd never traveled on my own before until this, you know, the big trip we're talking about. But because I had gone to India those few years before, I really did kind of have this calling and just had this intuitive like force that was telling me you need to go back to India. So the initial plan was to uh, tick off some sites and complete a bucket list, but something happened pretty early on. You met somebody pretty early on that changed that plan? Yeah. So, I mean, I did. I just, it wasn't like an intentional thing. Like I want to check things off a bucket list, but the, I realize now it was just part of my mentality. That's the way I was sort of groomed here. Um, so it wasn't like an intentional thing. I must check off all these things. But luckily, I did. I met a girl. She's actually from Sydney. She's the one I was visiting. So I met her on day five of my trip. Siggy is her name. And she turned out to be a really pivotal um, person uh, well, in my life overall, but just you know, at that time, particularly because she had solo traveled before. She was like, babe, why are you so eager to like go to a different country already? Just like hang here and see what happens. Wait till you know, you'll know when it's time to leave. And I'm like, yeah, but it was also like a fear thing, Phil, honestly, like I had this sort of perceived idea that, you know, I have to pre-plan everything because that's going to keep me safe because solo traveling as a woman, I was extremely um, frightened, you know, 
did it prove to be true though? Really, they were all fears within my mind. I mean, um, the I had all great experiences. Uh, it definitely caused me to question like beliefs, my limiting beliefs. And I love this quote from uh, Mark Twain. He says, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. And I didn't even realize I held certain views that I held. Like it wasn't until I'm standing in the domestic security line in the Indian airport where I'm in the Delhi airport where I'm like, oh, my gosh, I am freaking out right now. I'm the only Western woman in this line. And, you know, I hadn't even left the airport yet. And I was frightened. And um, but, yeah, it did. It proved to be the world proved to be a good place. I mean, we do have to be smart. We have to be careful. Give us a bit of a rundown on some of the places that you've been to. Yeah, um, I think the most confronting was, um, well, India and Tanzania. Um, But India, I think, was my favorite because there's just so much spiritual growth and unique experiences and the culture is just so beautiful. Um, I mean, Italy and Ireland, they were beautiful for, you know, scenery and wine and just gluttonous wonderfulness with gelato and and, um, things like that. Indonesia was beautiful. I love the music and the culture and the rice patties. Um, Brazil was interesting. I was there for about five weeks uh, seeing a spiritual healer in uh, the middle of kind of nowhere Brazil. Um, I was interested that you mentioned Tanzania is confronting. What what was it about Tanzania? Well, we were just – now, at this point, I was actually traveling with someone. I had a romantic relationship with someone while traveling, and so he and I went together to Tanzania, and we were traveling in the southern part um, in the very rural areas. And, you know, we weren't in the north where, you know, the Serengeti is or most of the tourists. So it was just – and there's a a lot of need there, and so – you know, just going to the bus terminal to catch a bus in Dar es Salaam, we were bombarded by a horde of men who were just, they were desperate to just get us on a bus. But when it's five in the morning and it's dark and you only have head torches and you're surrounded by people that are really kind of in a, mo- it's sort of a mob mentality, um, you know, those sorts of things are scary. So what did you do to cope with that sort of feeling of being out of place? Well, you just sort of deal with it, but it is, it's sort of like an emotional, um, uh, emotional continual stress. I mean, and that, that comes with long-term travel too. I mean, I feel I should mention that, you know, long-term travel seems glamorous and wonderful, but it's actually quite exhausting because you are, you're confronted regularly with the unknown basically. So you just kind of deal with it. You, you make sure you're safe. You befriend the locals. You just, you just kind of try and, you know, merge in as you can to the culture and you make friends. And, you know, even with language barriers, you're able to make friends. Um, I had this one woman in Tanzania, she came up to me and, you know, we couldn't speak at all, but she just walked right up to me on this dirt road and held my hand. And she walked with me for about 10 minutes and we held hands and she tried to talk and I tried to talk. And of course it didn't work. And then she just kind of skipped off and left. Um, you know, so there's some really beautiful experiences when you just put yourself in another country. Okay, that gets us to your book, Facing Freedom, and and the. I suppose you've kind of given yourself a new mission now. You want to try and help people to find themselves the way that you have as well. Is that right? Yeah, that actually is. Um, 
Yeah, I'm really sort of promoting that people take this sort of inward journey so they find out who they are and so they can be the best versions of themselves. And do you think, you know, traveling is a very large part of that? I mean, you could you could take this uh, journey of self-discovery at home, I suppose, but do you think travel aids it, makes it easier to do that? I think it definitely does, like, because, like, of just like the Mark Twain, Quain, Mark Twain quote, when you... Um, when you step out of your own society, you know, it's almost like if you really observe it almost you start to take on like this, you know, anthropological job where you're sort of observing yourself in new cultures and then comparing back to your own country and saying, well, what is it that I like about what we do and what what I don't like, how we how we handle things. So in that way, travel provided travel was was the vessel to get me to see these things. Um yeah, the work can be done at home, and hopefully it will be because, you know, I think that's really an important cause and not everyone has the opportunity to travel. I think they can be linked, but they can be independent of one another. Give us give us some tips for, you know, somebody else who may want to try and follow in your footsteps. Uh, what would you say uh, to somebody who's going, I'm going to set off and I'm, I'm going to go for a long time. It's one way. I don't know when I'm coming back. What's your advice? Um, I think one thing that's really important, and a friend gave me this advice, um, have an in, have like, be clear with your intention when you leave. Why are we going? Why do we go? Now, you know, there's many different reasons, but that's one advice is to kind of check in with yourself. And um, for me, I, I understood that my staying in America was somehow running from myself. And so for me, traveling was the most direct, you know, path back to myself but that's not going to be the case for everybody pick a place you feel you feel comfortable with um pick somewhere you feel safe where you can get a good start on your own great advice there and a couple of things phil firstly you and Erin share the same mark twain quote on traveling that's right travel is fatal to prejudice it goes on for much longer but that's basically the crux of it Secondly, uh, we've got links to Erin's book in our show notes, but travelling on your own doesn't always go to plan, Phil, as you'll hear from World Nomads contributor Alex Hatton, who was chased by headhunters in a recent trip. Right, okay, yeah, so this was uh, this was during my trek through the Badiam Valley, and um, I'm a really great guide. His name was Yesaya. There was some communication difficulty, and this was because his English was pretty broken, so it took me a while to establish him, but I didn't actually have a huge amount of money, and I wanted to make as much progress as I could. So on day two, he basically said to me, would I like to take a shortcut? And up to this point, the trekking had been pretty easy, and I thought I could do it, and it, and it would be no more challenging than it had been up until that point. So I said, yeah, let's go for it. And this was actually just after we had finished uh, climbing over this really rickety bridge with these streaming rapids below us. And it became very quickly apparent that the way we were now going to go was going to get a lot harder, a lot quicker. So we kind of veed off the path and we end up climbing up about maybe seven or 800 feet of rainforest. I remember at one point I actually looked on maps.me to see where we were and it was just a great big green splodge that said jungle and there was literally nothing else around for miles to see. And this was at this point, this is me, his sire, and his friend, whose name I never actually got told, basically on the day that we left, Isaiah rocked up with this young lad in tow who didn't speak any English and just introduced him as his helper. And I never really found out 
why this young lad came along with us. I actually think it was just uh, Josiah doing him a bit of a solid and getting him a bit of extra pay work. And I think it was on the assumption that if anything went wrong, you know, there was an extra pair of hands. Yeah. But, um... As it actually turned out, it was it was the helper who had to watch out the most because after we got to the top of this hill, we kind of got it quickly descended back down and back into the jungle, which is quite disappointing for me after having spent half a day climbing up it to very quickly see all our progress get lost. The view over top was pretty phenomenal, actually. Like, it was literally like stepping back in time and seeing something before man had even been around, like, in every single direction, for as far as I could see, it was just, like, jungle. So it was really impressive, and it was well worth the climb, which was great. And we kind of, we sat up there for about 20 minutes, chain-smoking cigarettes. <laughs> there's there's not any alcohol in West Papua, which I only found out when I got there. It was a horrible shock. After, like, a long, stressful journey to get there, I went to the bar that had all these spirits behind us, like, give me your cheapest drink. And we're like, nah, this is actually all, this is all decoration. We can't serve you alcohol. Like, no! Um, so we climbed back down the hill, and by the time we got to the bottom, and after several hours of literally hacking through this rainforest, beating lots of innocent plants to death to make our way through it, uh, it was getting pretty dark. And quite suddenly... I turned around and realised that the helper was actually... He, he vanished. And I was like, Isaiah, where's, where's your guy? And he looked at me. And we had about ten seconds to exchange a quite nervous glance. And in my head I was thinking, what hazards even are there in, in Papua jungle? Like, is there quicksand? Are there deadly animals? I had honestly had no idea. It had only been a last-minute decision to even go there, like, a couple of weeks before. So I hadn't really done much research. From where then, but before Alex? I... Sorry? Some, from where? What's that, sorry? From where was it a last-minute decision? So I was in Bali at the time. Ah, okay. And it was pretty much a drunken spur-of-moment decision. I was in a big group of people at a hostel, and I was staring at a map of Indonesia, and I was thinking, where's the craziest place I could go? Oh, West Papua. I don't really know much about that but every time i hear people talk about it I'm like yo west papua the last frontier i go there i kind of stood up and drunk and he said to him i'm going to west papua <laughs> i was like Great. who's coming <laughs> yeah literally and when i found out it was only going to be me who was going but uh i was committed at that point um so yeah it, it, uh, because of that i hadn't really done much research and i wasn't really a lot of the time it was i was kind of learning as i was going along so we just found out that Isaiah's friend had disappeared. But before we even really had time to discuss what had happened, we heard shouting and, like, whooping up ahead. And it was almost like hearing kids playing, you know? Yeah. But suddenly, out of nowhere, it wasn't kids. It was seven guys, completely naked, donned up in black war paint. And they were carrying bows. They had spears, which were literally, like, the spears were about two or three times long. As I was told, I'm watching the way that they balanced these, holding them along their sides as they ran through the jungle. It's just phenomenal, to be honest. They were completely barefoot as well. Um, they screeched to a stop in front of us. And what always, ne what, what I could never quite forget is uh, the way that one of them in particular looked to me. And he was quite young and his mouth kind of like hung open in amazement like he'd never seen 
a Westerner before, and I was just standing there quite awkwardly. I like tried to give him a wave, like hello, look as I'm listening. Are you going? Yeah, yeah. literally, literally. Um, and, and when we all turned our attention to Isaiah and started to talk to him in Papuan, so I had at this point absolutely no idea what was going on, and the talking kind of deteriorated into shouting, and suddenly. The conversation came to a complete stop, and they went tearing off past us and disappeared into the jungle. And I remember watching that as they went, thinking, wow, if one of those guys was chasing me, he'd catch me in about ten seconds. Like, there's just no way I could outrun that. I mean, Yesiah, who up until this point had always been a really chilled-out, friendly guy who was always laughing who was always smiling like even when i would be exhausted he would just be doing the splits over some perilous drop like eating berries off some bush as guys but for do. the first yeah yeah as they do you know as, as a sign of a helpful guide eating berries when you're almost falling to your death <laughs> um but this time he looked really worried and he looked at me and he said now we have very big problem my friend, he is from Yali tribe. They are at war with Yalis. And suddenly it came back to me that a lot of the guides I'd actually been speaking to before him had actually refused to go through this area because they said that fighting had broken out between some of the tribes, which apparently is a really common occurrence. But um, Isaiah had seemed very up for it, so I was like, okay, great. But now he would say we had a big problem, and he said... If they catch him, they will kill him because he's from Vialis. And if they come back and they can prove that I was with him, and I was like, oh, shit, how are they going to prove that? Yeah. They will kill me. And when he said really casually, just as an afterthought, and then maybe they kill you too. And I was kind of like just standing there thinking, shit, this is this has gotten really serious all of a sudden. This has gone from being like just a difficult day's trekking to like maybe a life or death scenario. And I was just about to ask him, okay, so what do we do? Do we do we go back with the guide? And he took off. And he went sprinting through the jungle. And I forced myself to into a run to keep up. And I barely could. Like, up until that point in the day, he had always been waiting for me to catch up on everything, which is great. But now he was just sprinting. And I had my bag on my back. Earlier in the day, I'd actually picked up a fossil about the size of a dinner plate. <laughs> and put it in my bag. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, uh, the irony is, I saw it and I was convinced it would be worth loads of money, and I later found out it's worth nothing. <laughs> but it was, it was pretty heavy, as well as all my other stuff. So that was making me feel quite physically sick at this point. And we went tearing through the jungle. Uh, we crashed through a river. The main bit, which actually cuts through the Ballium Valley, it can go from anything from like about as wide as a stream to like really, really wide. But And we did that for about what felt like maybe an hour, and it was getting darker and darker the whole time. We went crashing through this river up to our waists. I was soaked at this point. And quite suddenly, the jungle that we'd been going through, just it disappeared around us, and, and we were out in a clearing again. And that was that was a strange thing about Papua. Like, one minute you could be right in the thick of jungle, and then the next minute it was almost like plainsland, just grassy hills. Yeah. Um, so we came out of a jungle and in front of us was another mound. It wasn't as high as the one we'd climbed. And I looked up to the top and I actually thought I could see smoke spiraling up towards the sky. And I was thinking, oh, maybe there's people at the top. <laughs> so just as that happened, we actually heard 
quite a way back we could hear we could hear shouting again and Josiah turned around and he was like peering through the jungle to see what it was and I was thinking are they coming towards us so as we heard them shouting again in the forest behind us Josiah like started to burst like go 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 and we went tearing up this hill there was actually a little track going up it but we just sprinted up the side we got about halfway up we turned back and when Josiah was looking again and he was looking further back down the river to see if he could find something I assumed but he, he couldn't I, I remember seeing him like shake his head kind of sadly which made me think oh that's that's <laughs> definitely not a good sign when that happens and when he turned around and sprinted up to the top of a hill and I remember chasing after him getting to the top and then literally collapsing onto my knees and kind of feeling like I was going to pass out like that was probably if we hadn't got there at that point I was I was running on fumes by that yeah um fortunately however at the very top of that hill there was a fresh tribe of friendly people and we suddenly found ourselves surrounded by kids dogs adults and they're all looking very friendly they're going wah 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 and wah means welcome in Papuan and Yesaya looked really relieved and he was like hugging some guy and I was thinking to myself oh okay so I guess I guess we've made it I guess we're safe yeah we're now. safe yeah, way we've lived. Yeah. I was like, oh, wow, this actually make a really cool article. When you said you went to Bartawil, Indonesia, were you with mates? I'd done a um, tour with my brother, Will, who is the broke backpacker, so he's pretty well-known of a travel scene. He'd just done his first tour around Pakistan, and I went to help him out of that. And that was three weeks long. That was a great experience, but it was quite a lot of hard work. And after that, we were like, do you know what? We need to go somewhere chill and just unwind. So, so at the time that I had the idea to go to West Papua, I was I was with my brother, and, and I guess another reason that I decided to go, I was thinking, my brother has done so much cool stuff. I was thinking, how can I annoy him? How can I go somewhere that he hasn't been? I know I'm going to go technically further east than he's ever gone, and that really piss him off. Um, so that that was kind of one of the reasons I was inspired to go. What's next for Alex? Well, I've actually I've just got a job at Brighton Sea Life Centre. So I'm currently trying to earn some funds to go travelling because after Papua and Nepal and Bali, I'm completely skint. Amazing story, Alex. You're a crazy guy. We'll share some great pics in our show notes, but right now it's time to check in with our world nomads. What's the best thing about travelling? I would say adventure because we can, you know, discover the world. Sometimes we think the world is just a small city that where we live, but there's so much, you know, different cultures around the world. And it's very interesting to know about it. You learn different languages, you learn about different places, and uh, you meet different people, different food. It's amazing. Ah, so where are you from? Richmond, Virginia. And how long have you been traveling for? Oh, man, I've been traveling about two years now. And what do you like about it? Honestly, going out on things, going out on a limb, experiencing things. throwing myself out there more than anything a lot of people when they travel you know they worry about where they're going to stay you know they worry about money and everything and safety but i mean you just got to get out and just do it honestly all right checked in with our no world nomads tick now time to check in with phil and your travel news uh okay uh, there's been a lot of brouhaha one of my favorite words in australia this week as the first non-stop london to perth service begins um Perth, by the way, is one of the state capital cities in Australia on the far west coast. The excitement centres on the fact that the flight is scheduled for 17 hours and 20 minutes non-stop. 
One journalist on the flight knocked back the free business class ticket to see what the experience was like in economy. The verdict, like any other long-haul flight, only longer. Uh, by the way, it's not the longest scheduled flight in the world. Doha to Auckland in New Zealand is almost an hour longer, like 18 and a half hours. But if you were travelling from, you mentioned where Perth was, which is on Australia's far west coast, yes. if you were travelling to take that flight from Australia's east coast, it's about a four-hour flight. It. No, not it wouldn't worth be worth it. it. No, it's, like, it's a transcontinental flight. It's like travelling from New York to LA to catch a plane to go somewhere when you can do it from the east coast so but the english love perth so the english makes, love perth. makes perfect sense okay let's okay. carry on more news a united passenger has scored the jackpot after being selected to be bumped from a washington dc to austin flight ten thousand us dollars in free flight vouchers much better than being kicked in the head and forcibly removed or being placed in the overhead <laughs> locker uh, and suffocating to death. Nice one, United. You're getting the, you're getting the hang of it at last. Oh, when in Australia, if we bumped up a flight, we get some vouchers for a, a drink of water and a sandwich. Nice. $10,000. 10000 bucks in flight vouchers. Wow. Very nice. She was on her way to a uh, to like a hence party. So I don't, she she got, I don't know whether she got there or not. <laughs> But with 10,000 bucks in flight vouchers, would you care? Would you care? Anyway, uh, have you embraced the sharing economy? Are you an Uber user and an airbnb -er? So why not give Grabber a go? That's Grabber, grab R, no E, is an app that lets you sell spare space in your luggage to strangers. Ooh. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> oh, no. The founders say it's a combination of a rental agency and a courier service. If you're only taking carrying on, why not sell your 25 kilo allowance to someone who wants goods brought in from overseas? Oh, dodge. As you said, what, what could go wrong? Heaps. What could go wrong? <laughs> Heaps could go wrong. Headphones from Colombia, anybody? Exactly. <laughs> what about did you pack this bag yourself? Yeah, well, well, well the app founders say look, they found ways of making that a safe and secure way and you have to still comply with all of those rules but i mean you know not not withstanding those sort of difficulties they've done it yeah why not yeah. 25 kilo if you've got an empty suitcase flog the space to somebody else yeah i'll take you you know dirty undies your dirty undies <laughs> and your illegal salami yeah. or whatever it is that you've got why not uh, okay, a travel podcast, not this one, has named what it says is the most annoying travel habit. The Flight of Fancy podcast says this is the thing that's ruining the joy of travel. And what is that one thing? The crush of people around the baggage carousel. That's oh. why I only ever take carry-on. Oh, okay. I, I Seriously, I get away with it every single trip. Flight of Fancy says, take one small step backwards, everyone. Clear the space at the front and only move forward when you spot your bag. No pushing, no shoving. Everybody wins. Oh, it annoys me. Yeah, look, I have taken luggage on board on a flight before, obviously. And one of the frustrating ones is when the whole family stands there. Yes. Just let one person one go person. get the bag. Yeah. I have managed i think i've seen a few shins have copped it from my bag but I've, anyway anyway so you agree with that i agree with that i hate the baggage carousel thanks phil australians are big fans of travel to bali in fact you mentioned at the top of the episode it's the most popular indonesian island destination absolutely it is well thousands of other islands are in indonesia between 13 to 17,000. phil was saying because they actually haven't been able to count them. no can't count them all that's incredible so enter travel blogger anthony known as the travel tart firstly let's find out why he's called that 
Well, um, I actually didn't call myself that at first. Someone actually said that to me once when I had gone on, on a number of trips in quick succession and, and someone called me a travel tart and that sort of reflected, um, the former Queensland Premier Peter, Peter Beattie, he called himself a media tart, right? So he loved, loved being in front of the media all the time. And since I love traveling, they called me a travel tart. So, um, I thought it was a great name to start off uh, my blog with. So something a little bit cheeky, but not too offensive. Which is what us Aussies are all about, hey? Yeah, definitely. We're all about like taking the piss and, and not, um, you know, not taking ourselves too seriously. So, but I found that, um, with, with the blog, it's, it's given me like a, a point of difference, I guess, because I tend to write about the things that go wrong on the road or the, or the signs that don't translate very well into English and that, that sort of stuff. So I'm all about the quirky aspects of travel, which is, you know, right up my alley. Which is why we have contacted you for this podcast. So Indonesia really is on the, on the doorstep of Australia and you've been there. Yes, I have. I've been there a number of times. Uh, and I, I've been outside of Bali of all places. Now, now Bali in itself, you know, is a interesting place, but there is so much more to Indonesia than Bali and, if you don't go and venture outside to the other seventeen thousand islands, like um, you're, you're doing yourself a disservice. Um, I've been I've been there a couple of times, and I've also gone through uh, Sumatra and Java, which just really blew my mind. And it's it's a little bit off the beaten track. Not that many people go there, but it's it's totally worth your time to to, to have a look. Okay, so tell us then. You 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 said in your blog you're this guy that tells us about things that go wrong. What happened in Indonesia that you'd like to share with the audience? Um, okay, so I did a like um, a big trip about oh, this is about nine years ago now, and it was in conjunction with a pest. It's called this thing called the Pesta Blogger Conference. So what that literally means it means blogger party, and in Indonesia they're right into into blogging, and there's actually quite a decent um, uh, freedom of speech there, and, they, and people can blog about all sorts of stuff, including politics and travel and food and all sorts of things. Now, I was invited to do a trip through Sumatra and Java and stay with people in different um, in different cities or, or blogger communities, and what was great about it, I got to, got to see their world and, and how they lived, and the stuff they showed me, there's no way in the world I could have got this out of a guidebook or just by travelling on my own, and the, what I loved about it is that I was living what the locals were doing, and I just loved every second of it. The thing about Indonesia is is that it's extremely culturally, culturally diverse. It's one of the most diverse places I've been to. So you could go to like one city, you could go from you know Banda Aceh to Pekanbaru to Palembang and in, in Sumatra, and then then you head off to um, to Java, and you go to Bandung and Semarang and Surabaya, and each each one has their own culture and it has their own cuisine. Uh, and sometimes its own language and but just overall like the people are they're so friendly and welcoming and um, like it was one of the best trips i've ever done what things did you pick up by living inverted commas um with the locals one thing i found is that the locals are like extremely um accepting and tolerant so Look, Indonesia is like one of the biggest, uh, predominantly Islam countries in the world. And I remember like traveling through there and spending time with people. And, and even though I was thinking hot and I was craving a beer, I, I was just, um, you know, out of respect, decided not to, to drink beer in front of people. And, but they'd come up to me and says, Oh, you know, we don't drink beer, but we don't care if you do. So like just, you know, crack on open and, and we'll have a water with you. So it really didn't matter. Like they were very accepting and very tolerant of, of um, you know, of, of everything and everyone. And um, 
and I guess they, they pride themselves on their hospitality. And um, just as another example on on this trip, um, I was staying with one of the bloggers, and he he then asked me, uh, "Are you doing anything tomorrow?" And I said, "No, not really." And then he said, "Well, would you like to come to my sister's wedding <laughs> as a oh, guest?" Right. And I went, um, yeah, sure. Why not? And so I had to go out um, batik shirt shopping that afternoon, so because that's a, the traditional dress in, in Indonesia. So I, I turned up to the wedding um, and did what a guest does and provide like money for the, the bride and groom. I even had my photo taken with the bride and groom. Uh, <laughs> as, as one of a the wedding guests. crasher. A wedding crasher. Like, I was literally a wedding crasher. Like, but. Um, but I was like, well, I didn't crash it. I was invited. I was an invited guest. Um, so that was really quite um, an amazing experience because there is no way in the world I could have ever, um, ever had that kind of experience just as a tourist on my own. But, you know, I did say to them, you know, please show me your world because that's what I want to see. I don't, you know, I don't leave, leave Australia to go and see more of Australia somewhere else. I'm not, I'm not the kind of guy that's going to booze up with the boys in the bin, bintang singlets over yeah. in Bali. So. That's that's not what I wanted. I wanted to see what what people do, how they live, and you know, obviously go go see Bali, have a look. But it's also worth going to see all those other islands that are that are out there. Um, there's heaps more that I'd love to go to. I'd love to go to uh, other places like Sulawesi and um, and West Papua. That, those all those areas. But um, you know, you could spend ages in Indonesia just in that country alone, and you you'll, it's like going to a different country in each island. We'll share Anthony's blog in our show notes. And meantime, Phil caught up with Audrey to chat surfing in Indonesia, which makes perfect sense given that she has a website called Surf Stoked Mums. That's right. I have a website all about traveling and surfing around the world with um, my little daughter, Valentina. And, uh, yeah, we really just focus on all these far-flung destinations like Indonesia. A beautiful name, Valentina. Good. How old is she? She's three. Oh, okay. So how do you – all right, well, that's a whole sort of, you know, different set of questions as well. Like how do you find travelling with a three-year-old? Because some people put it off. They can't, can't be done. My partner and I both decided that we wanted to keep travelling just the way we did before with a few sort of adjustments. But I found it really, really amazing. Like it's actually changed our experience in so many ways because – like a child is the ultimate icebreaker and basically everyone smiles at you everyone wants to talk to you and in indonesia particularly in bali but all over they just love kids and they will like take valentina out and like abduct her and then take her through like the whole (laughs) kitchen and like we're having like a nice dinner date without her half the time and yeah it just really gets you it opens doors for you almost you know i mean it can be difficult do you have to you know like take it i mean because immune systems and things like that do you have Mm -hmm. to take care with that sort of stuff we've definitely had our moments we've had the horror flights you know with screaming and we definitely i have like a crazy um first aid kit of like natural remedies and then like the hard stuff just in case it all fails you know (laughs) so i always have all that and she luckily you know touchwood hasn't been sick at all it's mostly my husband that gets sick yeah, he's got like the severe case of the man fool that like never goes yeah. away. So. Okay, <laughs> we do. What? No, it does hurt more. Okay, I'm sticking uh, up like, for him. Oh, right? nothing's happened to Valley like ever on a trip. <laughs> oh, Luke, yeah, all the time. So. Uh, fair enough. Okay, but look, we're here to talk about surfing now. Indonesia. Um, I'm I'm here at World Nomads headquarters in Australia, so I'm aware of the fact that there is amazing surf in Indonesia. But other people around the world may not be aware of that. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much world-class on par with Hawaii. You know, you have waves like Uluwatu and um, the Mentawi Islands that are like, they call Mentawi the surfing Disneyland. So that's where people, like, they save their money their whole life to get there to surf these waves because it's waves that break over shallow reef. 
and are most likely to have barrels and really critical sections, along with waves that are better for intermediates and beginners. There's a great variety. I mean, there's like 17,000 plus islands there. So you got a lot of options. Yeah. And the Mentawis, difficult to get to or? Yeah. (laughs) Well, last year we went to Telos, which is just north of the Mentawis. Um, and basically you fly, we flew Australia to Bali, Bali to Jakarta, Jakarta to Padang, and then we took an overnight boat trip um, to the islands that we went to. I think Mentawi, you can get there on a speedboat like within three hours, but that's from Padang, which isn't exactly yep. like an international outpost. Surfing in Bali, pretty popular as well, but pretty crowded, right? Yeah, I went to Bali for the first time, I think it was in 2007. And I thought it was, like, the best place I'd ever been in my life, like, end-all, be-all. And then I started going back every year, and every year it got more and more crowded, uh, more competitive, and it just, like, just became not fun anymore. You know, you don't spend all this money to go to a foreign destination to surf with more people than you have in the water in Australia. So that's when I started searching further afield and ended up in Lombok. Okay, so tell us about the surfing culture in Lombok, then. So Lombok's really cool because you can be in Bali and like basically decide in a couple of days you want to go to Lombok and pay like $50 on Garuda and fly to Lombok in 20 minutes yeah. and your surfboards are free. And then you get there and it's a completely different vibe from Bali. Um, first of all, it's Muslim and Bali's a Hindu island, but it's also much more arid. I guess across the Lombok Strait is like a big dividing line between like being more like the north part of Australia yeah. and being more tropical. So everything's dry, like super dry, but for some reason that means they also have really beautiful beaches. It, all the beaches are like amazing there with white sand and um, which in Bali, if you're up near Kuta, Changu area, that's all like a blacked turned up sand. It's not the most picturesque, I would say. And very hot on your feet. And very hot on your feet. <laughs> but yeah, Lombok has gorgeous beaches and um, a really chilled out vibe. Like it's not as built up. There's no traffic. You can get on a motorbike or rent a car and drive pretty much anywhere and you don't have to wait around like you do in Bali. Like Bali's just incredible, the traffic these days. So. All right. But you said it is a Muslim island. So, I mean, the surfing culture is a pretty strong culture in itself and, you know, well, quite hedonistic. How, does, how do the two... How do the two meet? So I think that Lombok is sort of evolving a little bit. I mean, it is it is Muslim, but I would say overall it's a moderate, um, generally speaking, it's moderate Muslim culture, uh, meaning that it's not a super hard line sort of yeah. situation. Um, but there is a, a change going on sort of in the Kuta and the southern Lombok area that's sort of welcoming the beach culture. Not to say that you can like run around in your bikini on the street or anything like you still have to be super respectful but there are a lot of younger people that are saying hey like tourism's bringing um a lot of money to our area a lot of opportunities to people here and also bringing all these new people and they're becoming really good friends with the muslim people are becoming really good friends with westerners and people from all over the world which i've thought is, <clears throat> excuse me has been really cool to see because when i first went there it was a little more it wasn't as welcoming and it wasn't as accommodating for so many travelers and now they have like all these little beach bars and like startup things and we've actually become pretty good friends with a muslim family that lives there and they're just super awesome cool people and what a like shift in perspective from what you would expect going to like a predominantly muslim area but indonesia has actually taken um, a big initiative to continue to support muslim um you know national travel to lombok it's actually a big spot for other people from indonesia to come so there's that going alongside with like a western surf culture which is 
pretty unique you know like i don't think you see that anywhere else in the world but what what can we find on your website oh on my blog well i do a lot of destination guides to wherever i go so most recently we've been in the philippines so we went on a surfing trip all over the philippines so we just did that and then i have a lot about indonesia because i've spent so much time there um it's also a lot of travel tips for parents who want to keep surfing and taking their kids with them um yeah like you know packing lists and all that kind of stuff just to get because so many moms want to do these trips and yeah. dads too but they're a little bit nervous and it's just it goes to show that you know with the right information and preparation you can survive a trip with a small child it's not the end of the world bag of lego and a sticker book <laughs> coloring books are a big thing oh, right now yeah but we have a girl so she sits still for longer than boys i think <laughs> do appreciate you coming it's been fantastic talking to you thank you a link to Audrey's website in our show notes. Phil, the answer to your quiz question to wrap up this episode. What colour at present is the Eiffel Tower? And they're going to be painting it, repainting it again soon. The answer is, <laughs> unceremoniously, brown. Uh-uh. It's brown. <laughs> so you said they painted uh, seven, it's been seven, Every seven years. And different colours each year? Uh, pretty much. Well, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Versions okay. of brown? Well, according to this newspaper report, originally it was a deep red colour okay. so, that, so that they... Because don't forget, it wasn't a permanent structure. It was only for the World Exhibition. Exhibition, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so they painted it red so you couldn't see the rust, all right? But then it got repainted an ochre colour in 1892. At the turn of the century, they changed it to yellow, <laughs> but they said that was a bit too optimistic for the era. Well, I mean, I can see it at night, lit up very much. It's a yellow glow, but not... <laughs> that's yep. crazy. And then it was made a yellow-brown in 1907, and then in about 1968 they said, let's try to get closer to the original colour, so it ended up being painted a kind of red-brown, and at present it's sort of a murky brown colour at the moment. But as you say, it gets lit up every night. It's got a oh, it's magnificent light display on it, so it's all sorts of colours. But the actual frame is murky brown at the moment. And when they repaint it this uh, this coming year, they think they might turn it back to the uh, more like the original colour of a really bold red. Oh, nice. Keep an eye I'm out. just trying to figure out, like obviously I've, st- I've stood at the base of the Eiffel Tower and the colour is not kind of registering with me i don't no. think of it as a color yeah but it wasn't steel gray i remember that it was no it's not a steel color. yeah it's a darker Sorry. color but not still yeah anyway there you go that's a good pay question. attention next time you're at the eiffel tower yeah i will do that well that wraps up our episode on indonesia please subscribe right share on itunes google play stitcher you can find us on spotify and iHeartRadio, and contact us by emailing podcast at worldnomads.com next our featured destination is tanzania Mm. Straight away, we've got an issue. I say Tanzania. Yeah, but I'm an idiot and I say Tanzania. (laughs) Do you know that you're against the the, the tide? I know. It's just one. It's the word. When I look at it, it doesn't register the right way in my head. It looks like Tanzania to me, and I say. Well, we're visiting that country, and that's next. Until then, see ya. Bye. The World Nomads Podcast. Explore your boundaries.